Welcome to Too Much Not Enough, a podcast about the obsessions of two very intense people. I'm Emma Winston. And I'm Darius Kazemi, and today we're going to talk to you about 90s scratch DJ culture. This is my topic. I was a scratch DJ for a few years in high school because I was super into it. Hence, we're doing this episode because it was one of my sort of teenage obsessions. This is something I realize I know nothing about, like nothing. Most people know nothing about it. So I guess, uh, so the the topic is kind of specifically phrased because I want to be as accurate as possible. I'm talking about 90s scratch DJ culture, Mm -hmm. which is its own specific thing. So I guess the first thing I just want to talk about is like, what is a scratch DJ? Like, what is this? Until you sent me the stuff for this, I thought that it was a thing that people only did occasionally as like a subset of playing other music genres. I didn't realize it was like its own distinct thing. So turntablism, as it's sometimes called, is one of those like technical subgenres of music. I, I liken it a little bit to like, speed metal like the Ingwie Malmsteen shit where it's like you know you have these guitarists they're usually dudes and they're like you know competing to see who can play you know a bunch of notes as fast as possible (laughs) you know with like as much virtuosic (laughs) skill as possible but to sort of rewind a little bit and talk about its its origins it comes out of the scratching slash turntablism of hip-hop more generally So the story goes, it was probably invented by this DJ called Grand Wizard Theodore. Grand Wizard is being used ironically because he is black. He is not actually KKK affiliated, but that was sort of his edgy DJ name back in the late 70s. And he is credited as the person who invented the scratch as a technique. So prior to that, you had hip hop DJs like Cool Herc who invented what we might call beat juggling, which is a way of taking a portion of a song and making it last forever by looping it. Mm -hmm. But you loop it manually. So you have two turntables, you have two record players, and you have a mixer with a fader, Mm -hmm. a crossfader on it. And when the fader is in one direction, on like all the way to the right, then it's the right hand or uh, turntable that is playing the music. And if you put it all the way to the left, you only hear what's playing on the left Mm -hmm. turntable. And if it's in the middle, you can hear both. Yeah. And it's analog, so there's Mm -hmm. a whole gradient in between those two. And so if you take two copies of the exact same record, they're the same album, right? So it's like a a James Brown funk record. Mm -hmm. And you cue them both up to the exact same point in the record when uh, you can say, okay, I'm just going to play on the left turntable. Mm-hmm. And in the moment that the beat is over, I shut off the sound on the left and I start playing the same thing on the right. Oh. And so you've moved from the left one playing the beat mm-hmm. to seamlessly into the right one playing the beat. And then while the right one is spinning and playing, you re up the left one until you're back at the beginning of the sample. Oh. And then you switch the sound over and then you seamlessly play that loop and so you're manually looping so you can just keep swapping back and forth between them forever exactly yeah and so that was like kind of the first foundational dj technique Mm. that cool herc invented where he would take the breakdown from like a disco track and just play the breakdown forever that's why it's called a breakbeat i was reading about 
1940s vacuuming as like a predecessor to this. There's a thing about it on Wikipedia about late 1940s radio DJs who did their own technical operation as audio console operators and it was used to find the very beginning of a song but only they could hear it. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a technique that uh, that a hip hop DJ uses as well. So it's like you have your you're basically wearing your monitors, mm. and you can hear what's in the monitor headphones, but the you know the the listener can't. Mm-hmm. For example, uh, it's not being recorded, or in the case of radio, it's not being broadcast. So then, so then you're you know while you're listening on your headphones, you can hear the sort of tape rewind sound the until you get back to the portion of the record that you want, and then now that you've queued up to where it needs to be, then you go from just your monitor headphones to the live. That makes more sense in light of what you just explained to me, because yeah. they they describe it as being like a way of avoiding dead air on a radio station. So right. it's like a similar technique, but the audience doesn't hear it. Well, and what's interesting here also is that Cool Herc's technique the audience didn't hear either. It was kind of just like magically the middle part of a song was extended. So they heard the they heard the output, but you didn't hear any like yeah. you know, like any weird cueing sounds. Mm-hmm. Cool Herc did not do that. It was Grand Wizard Theodore who came along and said, Oh, well, what if we like played these weird cueing sounds? Mm-hmm. Like what if we took this thing that we had taken great pains to hide from people and put it up front. And so uh. Grand Wizard Theodore was the person who invented what's known as scratching. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, it's called scratching because it sounds like you're scratching on a piece of plastic. And also it does scratch the record, mm. too, depending on how your turntable with the needle is calibrated. And, uh, uh, and it actually causes physical grooves to uh, to deepen in the record so i still have some of my old records from when i was scratching in high school i can point to the part of the record uh, like physically and i can say oh that is where you know the singer is going ah because That's i so like to cool. scratch that up <laughs> and you can tell because it's like faded and white so cool. along that particular groove yeah wow so scratching was really like a way of taking these things that were byproducts of the production process, really, and uh, and saying, oh, these actually sound kind of cool. Mm. Let's put it front and center. One of the things that I love about hip-hop, or at least a certain kind of hip-hop, is that it's often pulling back the curtain and kind of showing you how some of this mm. stuff is done. There's a few DJs who do this. A cut Chemist does it a lot, where he'll have a song where there's a loop playing, but just before the loop executes so it'll be like one two three four one two three four but before you get from the four back to the one it'll be one two three four and then you hear one two three four one two three four and that's him mixing in the little piece of back cueing that he did in order to get the sample to play oh okay at the right time and i just like that so it's kind of making the invisible visible The turntable has like a weird history in hip hop anyway because it was kind of there from the beginning and it was there uh, because it was consumer electronics that black people in New York had access Mm -hmm. to. And basically it was cheaper than hiring a live band. 
having a DJ was just cheaper. Uh, you know, because yeah. before the record players, you had to have a live band at your party. Yeah. And so you had to pay, you know, X number of musicians and blah, 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 all the equipment. Block parties using DJs was just an economic thing. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, you had beat juggling and you had scratching and that sort of thing. There was kind of a scratch mania in the, (laughs) in like the early 80s where like it was kind of the novelty sound. I I guess it's a little bit like auto-tune in the T-Pain era of pop music Uh where every song had to have very conspicuous auto-tune because that was just Mm -hmm. like the sound of the future. (laughs) There was a time when turntables were and scratching were like that. There's a really famous song by a group called Nucleus. And the song is technically called Jam On It, but became a hit. And everybody who heard it was just, it's the wiki, wiki, wiki song. Oh, okay. Now I know what song it is. Exactly. <laughs> now yeah. that you said and that. so then they oh, re released it. They, then they re released it as Jam On It and then parentheses, wiki, wiki, wiki. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. And so it it got kind of like cliche and corny for a while. In the mid 80s, kids, and I say kids because they were children, Mm. like a small number of kids started getting like really into turntablism and really like looking up to like a few of the early pioneers like Mm. Grand Wizard Theodore. One of these groups of kids formed a group called the Invisible Scratch Pickles, not spelled in standard English spelling. (laughs) in any way it's like p it's it's scratch with a k it's p-i-k-l-z oh. i believe yeah <laughs> that's so wholesome it is wholesome yeah you can obviously <laughs> tell it's just like it was started by like 12 year olds you know oh. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so they formed it technically in like i don't want to say 83 84 85 something like that but didn't really come to prominence until the early 90s probably because they were like 12 or 13 and it mm-hmm. took them you know years for their like you know, testicles to drop and that kind of thing. <laughs> Is that a necessary part of being a scratch DJ? <laughs> it might be. There's a lot of... I, like I, a lot of I these, wouldn't know on multiple levels. <laughs> like a lot of these technical subgenres like speed metal and stuff, like scratch DJ slash turntablism is horribly cis male dominated. Actually, uh, but, the sort of macho posturing was really interesting in one of the videos that you sent me. It was like a scratch DJ battle. Yeah, scratch DJ stuff often happened in battle format. So it was similar to like breakdance culture in that sense, where it was like one crew would battle another crew and they would record it and there would be all this posturing and the crowd would vote on who won the battle by who got the most applause, that kind of thing. There's a video that I'll link in the show notes. It's from a famous battle called Invisible Scratch Pickles versus the Clams of Death, I want to say. Um, the Clams of Death. Of with an O-V. Clams with a K, you know, yeah. How are you even supposed to remember this stuff? I mean, you're the way you're supposed to remember it is you are a teen or a preteen and you obsess over it. That's how you remember That's it. That's fair. Yep, that yeah. makes sense. So there's this battle. It's at DMC, which is short for Disco Mixing Club because it started in the early 80s. It eventually became known as just DMC, not to be confused with Run DMC, Mm. which is a totally different DMC. And it's basically just the big sort of contest venue where they crown the Mm. world champion of DJ every year. And in this battle, there's just this shirtless MC who's like, basically like, let's get ready to rumble. And then there's, they'll drop like disses in sample form in their routines and stuff. 
But they're just nerds. They're just fucking nerds. They are. It's really endearing. They're called the invisible scratch pickles. Like, <laughs> And so I was like obsessed with this stuff as a teenager to the point where I did get my own record player and mixer and stuff and start doing some of the scratch DJ stuff myself. I mean, you are a wholesome nerd, so... I am a wholesome nerd. <laughs> it's only to be expected. Turntablism as a kind of musical subgenre never hit mainstream hip-hop. Mm. It never did. The closest it ever did was Mixmaster Mike, who was one of the founders of the Scratch Pickles, was the touring DJ for the Beastie Boys. Oh, okay. For like uh, six years or seven mm. years. Basically the last 10 years of their existence before okay. they uh, broke up. Hubert, who's kind of the other most famous Scratch Pickles member, did all the DJ work for the Deltron 3030 album, which was a little bit of like a crossover hip hop mm. hit type album. But, you know, they were always just like prominent sort of session players in a bigger milieu. None of their solo stuff ever went mainstream or anything like that. Mm. Which makes sense because they're making this music that is kind of aggressively technical. Mm. I found a great quote describing there's an album called Phantasmagoria by this DJ called D Styles and it came out in the early 2000s and he was specifically like every sound you hear on this record was played by a hand moving a record oh my god wow so there's no instruments there's no synthesizers none of that it's just the entire album and no loops either mm. so if you hear boom bap boom boom bap that is him cueing a record and going boom, wow. boom, 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 and like and sort of layering the recording mm. that way. And what the reviewer said about the uh, the album was it was continuously playful, fantasist, and inventive. Uh, and it's really like great music if you have a short attention span for music. Mm. The DJ will play one loop and play with one sound for like usually 15, 20 seconds, just enough time for you to get into like kind of a head bobbing groove and yeah. then immediately swap out the sample or drop in a new sample or or flip the beat by flipping the beat i mean like doubling the tempo or that sort of thing it generally tends to be not very coherent yeah, I mean, that was kind of what I I was surprised by in it was the first Mixmaster Mike track that you linked me to, Anti-Theft Device. And it's a head fuck. It's such yeah. a head fuck. It's because yep. it all kind of merges into one thing and it's sort of semi-coherent. And every time you think you've got a hold on it, he throws something else at it. Right. And it's like a lot. Mutations are returning to normal. Attack. We too go into action. It's quite experimental. Like it's quite yes, tough it listening. It's like yeah, it is. That's again another reason it didn't break into mainstream. There's kind of like a pre two thousand and post two thousand turntablism mm -hmm. aesthetic, and that's actually why I sort of like picked the two Mixmaster Mike links to send you oh. because the anti-theft device was his 1998 album and the Eye of the Cyclops was an EP from 2000. Right. And so 
kind of post 2000, it almost ends up with more of like a trip hop sort mm-hmm. of sound yeah. to it. I really, really like the later one that you said. Yes. The earlier one, I think, is more interesting, right? but a much tougher listen. <laughs> a lot of it is like, you know, Mixmaster Mike would take, like, samples from, like, two dozen different sci-fi movies and mm-hmm. kind of, like, you'd hear, like, one character talk from one movie and then you'd get 60 seconds of crazy sounding breakbeats and then you'd hear another character speak in kind of like response to that and then another two minutes of crazy breakbeats and then yeah it definitely has this kind of always forward motion Mm. type thing to it which is different from a lot of hip-hop yeah hip-hop's very cyclical hip-hop is about getting into a groove Mm. and while this stuff is i don't know if i'd say obviously certainly it claims to be hip-hop and most people would say it is hip-hop because it's like djs and beats and there's like voices and sometimes rapping but it's kind of different its aesthetic goals are different it seems like most if not all of the stuff that you sent me is kind of based on recognizably hip-hop drums but then with loads of other stuff yeah done yeah. to it and layered on top so there's like this kind of core of it that's recognizably hip-hop but then the rest of it kind of deviates from what i would understand as hip-hop at least right yeah and so and so like just to go into like technique a little bit there's all this weird stuff in turntablism i mean so for example as you're playing these things and i'm going to be linking some videos that are like intro one 101 like here's how this kind of works but Basically, how it works is you have your record and you have your mixer, and you don't even necessarily need a second record player to scratch. I mean, it helps, but you don't need a second one. Usually what it is is one record is playing the drum loop, and then on the other record, you're scratching. Mm -hmm. But also, you could have a drum machine hooked up to your mixer instead and scratch over that, which is what I did in high school. Mm -hmm. One of the things I love about it is you have to like map the samples in your head to the radial position of the record. Wow. The most sort of common thing to do is if you have a record and there is like a sample of um, of like a, a woman singing a note and you want to scratch up that note, what you do is you cue up the record and make sure that the needle is like right where that sound that you want begins. And then what a lot of DJs will do is they'll put a piece of tape on the record itself like in the in the middle where the mm. label is, not on the actual yeah. grooves of the record. Uh, and it'll start in the middle and kind of point out like an arrow mm. in at the angle where that sample starts. And so then you have a visual cue mm. that's and, and in your head you can be like, okay, I've queued up this sample. And as long as the piece of tape is pointing at like 12 o'clock, I know that's the beginning. And so if I back cue, I have this like, metronome looking thing going back and forth and i know every time the tape is at 12 o'clock that's the start of the woman singing or that's the start of the snare drum Mm -hmm. and uh, and so on now of course you know there's if you it's hard to explain if you have if you're totally unfamiliar with how records work but they kind of spiral inwards even if you have the correct like radial position of the record you could still end up in the wrong groove Mm -hmm. like if you're just one groove over now you're suddenly like you know one and a half seconds ahead in the song and so if the needle skips even if you're in the right area you're going to Mm -hmm. end up 
uh, playing the wrong yeah. part of the sa- of the sound. Oh, no. And so, uh, you know, that's where like good equipment can help. If you have mm. like a well-tuned and weighted needle, mm. you want to hold the record with a light touch so mm. that it doesn't, so that you're not like mm-hmm. banging on it and causing vibrations that will cause the needle to skip. However, there were some weird technical innovations uh, by actually the Scratch Pickles crew. I forget who it was, but one of them invented this thing, um, a special kind of record where if you listened to it all the way through, it wouldn't make any sense, but it would just be the same sample over and over and over again, triggering slightly faster and faster and faster, not faster in speed, but there would be less and less blank space Mm -hmm. between the sample triggers. So if it's a hit, like 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 there's there's a sound, I'll just cut it in, but it's like a... And so if you listen to the record, you'll hear, ah, 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 and it'll get faster and faster and faster, almost yeah. imperceptibly. And the reason for that is it will cue at the exact same radial point of the record every time. So even if the yeah. needle skips, you're still playing the same sound because it's all lined up. That's so clever. It's oh my weird. God. Yeah, it's, and it's so <laughs> weird. It's a record wow. that is strictly based on radial consistency rather than sounding like something. (laughs) So yeah, so you get these weird technical innovations. Uh, Other things that were really popular were pressing acetate records, which are basically just metal plates that you would press as like a temporary one-off. Because the thing with records, like vinyl records, is they're a mass production medium and it doesn't make sense to print like one record, mm-hmm. right? You have to you have to press a certain number for it to be economically viable. Yeah. Acetate is basically a plate of metal that you etch with acetate and it works as a record, oh. but it's easy. It's kind of the 3D printing of vinyl records. Yeah, that makes sense. So uh, I, I do want to talk a little bit about Scratch as like a culture as well. Mm-hmm. It was a very early, almost online-only musical culture. It was most sort of active, I would say, 1995 to 2000, so right at the birth of the web Mm -hmm. as we know it. Other than in the San Francisco Bay Area where the Scratch Pickles were based, and you basically had a bunch of, like, Filipino kids, like, doing... Because the Scratch Pickles were, I think, predominantly Filipino. Mm. Uh, It's like Filipino and like Latino kids. Like that's who really pioneered this stuff. Obviously, there were like white and black DJs and other races as well. But Filipino and Latino was Mm. like the the sort of uh, ethnic makeup of most of the core Mm. musicians. But outside the Bay Area, there wasn't really that much of a scene anywhere in the world. And Scratch DJs were kind of notorious for being known as the concept of the bedroom DJ mm-hmm. because in mainstream hip hop culture a DJ is someone who like goes and plays house parties and plays at clubs and like goes on tour and that kind of stuff like that's what a DJ is and then you had your bedroom DJ which was like these nerds there were nerds who had a DJ set up in their bedroom and they would record these like weird little sci-fi sounding tracks mm-hmm. and like make their records make weird noises and a lot of this stuff was organized through like early voiceover IP type stuff uh, okay. because it was highly international and no one could afford the phone bills, you know. <laughs> um, and there were a lot of like forums as well. I remember sort of going on the forums and like it was just terrible forum culture. Like any musical sub forum culture, 
They invented their own language. I sent you a couple of those instructional videos, and it's like, okay, this is the baby scratch. Now, this is the forward <laughs> scratch. This is the backward <laughs> scratch. This is the this is the boomerang. This is the flare. This is the like they all have their own weird little names for every move. I did not know until today. Even though, like, uh, you know, it's like uh, this is an actual name of something, but you know, it's like, oh, the Doolittle. Oh, that's just a doohickey, <laughs> but backwards. <laughs> When I was in high school, I would never consider myself a real DJ because I couldn't do a flare or a crab. I could kind of pull off a crab, but a flare, definitely not. I don't know what those two are because those weren't in the video. What are they? And I used, I used my mixer hamster style, which was a little <laughs> bit weird and frowned upon. Are you just making this up? I'm well, not making need, it up. I, I need you to explain to me what right. these words mean. <laughs> I mean, a flare is where if you take a sample that's like, but you rapidly use your fingers to move the crossfader so it comes out its Okay, right. And I could only crab, which was that backwards, basically. <laughs> <laughs> Hamster style is basically there's like a standard where if you pull the fader in one direction, it corresponds to one record. And if you push it in the other direction, it corresponds to the other. Mm -hmm. Hamster style is when you flip a switch on your mixer to make that the opposite channels, basically. So I actually forget what the actual standards are, but like it's basically like push the fader all the way to the left and it cuts to the left record. Push the yeah. fader all the way to the right and it cuts to the right record. Hamster style is the opposite. Push the fader all the way to the left and it cuts to the right record. But I, yeah, I never really felt like a real, <laughs> like a real DJ, not even a real scratch DJ. And then of course, when I was doing this, it was like 1999. So it was almost towards like the end of this mm -hmm. era. It also, I don't think coincidentally coincided with the rise of new metal bands that had mm -hmm. a turntable player like Limp Bizkit. Uh, and so suddenly I was like in a lot of demand at my high school. Like I remember my <laughs> senior year, there were like all these like rock kids who I didn't really talk to who like found out that I played turntables and they all wanted me to join their rock band. Did you? I, I did a couple of like talent show performances, like one off. <laughs> oh my type god, things. I would love to hear yeah. those. We covered 311's down and I was the turntable player. It was pretty fun actually. Mm. Um but yeah, I just wanted to dive into this a little bit. I think most of the value of this episode is gonna come out of the show notes. I'm gonna post a lot of videos and things like that. It's just weird. It's really weird to think about a musical instrument where it is your hand controlling the playback of a sample and then your other hand controlling the volume of yeah. that sample. There are so many weird tricks you can do. If you have two turntables and you have the same record queued up on both and the same sample queued up on both, if you're fast enough, which a lot of the top tier DJs obviously were, you can simulate a delay. Oh, wow. I hadn't even thought of that. Just by... By, by playing the same sound over and over and oh moving God. the mixer so that yeah. the, the, the volume decays. Mm -hmm. So they'll do simulated delay. They'll do weird phasing things where they'll play two records at slightly different speeds at the same time. Mm -hmm. Or you'll play one record straight and then on the other one it's synchronized but you're just lightly dragging your finger over the record to slightly change the mm -hmm. playback speed and you just get these weird effects that way. The master of this kind of thing is someone whose videos that I sent you and I'll be posting in the show notes as well is Kid Koala. <gasps> I love Kid Koala. I was so amazed at both of those videos. I'm going to yeah. need to find like everything else that he's done. It was just, yeah. I was really, really not expecting 
anything like that. Yeah, Kid Koala is different in that he was never like a battle DJ, mm-hmm. not really. He was always interested and in, still is. I mean, he's, he's still an active musician. He was always interested in composing interesting shit. Mm. And he always had a weird sense. I mean, they all had weird senses of humor, but he was always a little bit more sophisticated, mm. I think, than a lot of the other DJs, just a little smarter in a lot of ways. And he is not as bound by like a lot of the like Mixmaster Mike and those folks, the scratch pickles, they were mostly trying to sound as like electro or hardcore as they possibly could. Mm-hmm. And Kid Koala could do that and he did it at times, but also a lot of the times it was just like, no, I'm gonna I'll be posting his cover of Moon River in the show notes and it's just hauntingly beautiful. It's so lovely. Yeah, or he'll just do straight up jazz. He sort of has like, it seems like he has like a really light touch. It's like he leaves enough of the original song in there. Yeah, exactly. The one that you sent me of him simulating a trumpet solo, like I don't even understand how he's doing that. Like mm-hmm. I, yeah. I watched it a bunch of times and I don't understand how it works. It's like yeah. magical. Right, yeah. In that video, which is Drunk Trumpet, I'll be linking as well. He's playing one record that's just sort of a standard jazz backing band playing like a one four five kind of bluesy backing track. And then on his record that he's actually scratching, he has what I believe was a Louis Armstrong sample. Uh, and it's a sample of like three notes of Louis Armstrong, something like that. Oh, God, is that all it is? Basically, yeah. But you know, if you have a single note of a horn mm. and you're manually controlling the playback speed, you can change the pitch. Yeah. You can pitch it up and down so that it it morphs from sounding like a trumpet into more of a trombone where you get these slides. You can do that flare move and get these like weird echoey type trumpet sounds. <laughs> But also, like, yeah, I'm also just like, how the fuck does he do that? Because <laughs> he's virtuosic that way yeah, as well. So just taking this instrument and just bending it into mm-hmm. sounds that are not at all constrained by a traditional, you know, 12-tone type yeah. situation. Thank you so much for listening to us talk about nature's samplers. This has been Too Much, Not Enough. I'm Darius Kazemi, a.k.a. Darius at friend.camp, that's on Mastodon, or tinysubversions.com. I'm Emma Winston, a.k.a. Deerful on Twitter, formatted deer like the animal underscore full, or deerful on mastodon.social, or you can find me on emmawinston.me. 